Welcome to Deal of the Week, Bloomberg's podcast on the world of mergers and acquisitions. I'm your host, Alex Sherman. Thanks for listening. Episode 39 this week. And this is an episode all you car racing fans are going to like because we're talking about Formula One. CVC Capital Partners, the London-based private equity firm, bought a stake in Formula One in 2006 that valued the company at the time at about $2 billion dollars. CVC put in about a billion dollars of its own money, quite a bit for a firm that really was just a mid-sized private equity firm at the time. And now, fast forward 10 years later, they are on the verge of selling that stake for quite a bit more than that. Joining us in studio is Kyle Porter, Bloomberg's private equity deals reporter, and Evan Novi-Williams, Bloomberg's sports business reporter. Gentlemen, welcome back to Deal of the Week. Thank you for having us. All right, so let's start at the very basics here. Uh, Evan, what is Formula One? Formula One is the premier racing circuit around the world. I mean, in the U.S., we think of NASCAR. Formula One is both bigger, it's more prestigious, there's more money in it, it races on five continents. It's all over. Um, and and as, as you talked about with, with the CVC money going in and what, what they're going to sell it for, it's a, it's a highly profitable organization. So, Kyle, how, how exactly does Formula One make money? Uh, it makes it in a variety of ways. I'd say the two primary sources of income uh, come from the uh, broadcasting rights that it generates uh, from selling to different territories. And it also gets a hefty cut of uh, the fees that are generated from the races. So, And then the remainder comes from merchandising. So, Kyle, you wrote a great story that can be found on Bloomberg.com on CVC turning this stake it owns into a huge profit just how much money might CVC make on this if it completes a sale? Well, it's already banked four and a half times its original investment on behalf of itself and its co-investors. Based on what we're hearing on an enterprise value, and a deal may get done within the next month, it could you know take in another four on top of that, which would be a fantastic return for a billion capital up front. So that so what would the total valuation of Formula One then They're be? They're talking around in the eight to ten billion range, and it depends. There's shareholder loans, so it gets a little bit technical when you're banking the whole return. Uh, but w- the best estimates from our sourcing is about eight x. And 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 who do we think the likely buyers are? There's a few. Um, there was a process about a year ago that kind of went cold. It was felt that CBC felt there was a little bit more runtime in the business, and Bernie has you know never felt any compulsion to change the shareholdings. Best estimates would say that Sky, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, of course, would be a strong bidder. Liberty are still in the background, and they're not expected. Um, John Malone, John Malone's Liberty. Liberty. And there's also uh, RSE Ventures, which is headed by uh, Stephen Ross, the head of the Miami Dolphins, is also working. He was previously working with the Qataris a year ago, uh, but they fell out, uh, is our understanding, over how much capital each party was putting in versus what sort of rights they had over the sport. So he's now working with the Chinese. So you threw in a quick reference to Bernie there. Uh, I want to spend a little bit of time on this. Formula One's founder, Bernie Ecclestone, uh, for this story, Kyle, you spoke to him and you have a little bit of a relationship with him from previous coverage, too. Describe to me what Bernie Ecclestone is like and what your relationship with him is exactly. I'm not sure Bernie has a great relationship with any journalist. Uh, I would describe as as professional, uh, for the most part. Uh, he's extremely sharp. You'd think at 85, you perhaps, you know, it's slowed or missed a step, but he's not. He's right there with you. He's, you know, I would argue a little bit Machiavellian from the conversations that I've had with other people around the sport, but he is made it his life's work and had been incredibly successful over five decades. So he's 85 years old and he 
is does he run everything for Formula One? He's perhaps the most involved chief executive of any sport on the planet. He controls everything from the rights negotiations to where the sport goes, right down to the amount of passes each individual team will have for their paddock for press and family and friends. Uh, Evan, have, you've also spoken to Bernie, right? I have a number of times. I, I love calling Bernie on the phone. Uh, what are those conversations like it's, exactly? It's funny. It's uh, One of the reasons I love it is because he picks up his phone which is something that you can't say of, of commissioners here in the U.S. Think of Roger Goodell. You're not going to call him on his cell phone, and he's going to pick up. I've been warned many times by people around uh, this business that you can't always trust what Bernie Ecclestone tells you on the phone. Uh, but I do love the fact that he picks up the phone. I love the fact that he will run his mouth about whatever the topic is when you're calling. But, yeah, you always have to take what he says with a, with a word of warning. So what is his background exactly? Did, did he stumble into Formula One, or, or was this sort of a— a, a long love of his? I wouldn't say it's a love. I mean, Bernie started as a motorcycle used car part salesman in the UK back in the 1950s. And you've got to remember Formula One was That's why you can't trust everything he says. <laughs> yeah. Your words, Alex. Bernie found the sport uh, coming in with his own racing team, Brabham, in the late 50s, early 1960s. He actually raced uh, as a driver for a couple of races and then got far into the technical team aspect of the sport. Uh, but the, during the late 60s and early 70s, there was just a lack of professionalism. If you chat to anyone who was involved with the sport during that time, races would be cancelled at short notice. Uh, entire teams wouldn't turn up if they couldn't afford the travel. Uh, Bernie saw that if you were going to make this a global success, you had to have better process put in place. So in 1978, he formed what is now the Formula One racing company that's traded hands so many times and did a deal with the teams that they'd receive a guaranteed slice of the pie in return for turning up for every single race and committing through the season. Now, that deal with hindsight has been incredibly profitable. Most uh, promoters, which is essentially what Formula One is for the sport, will receive about 1% to 5% of the revenues if you look at soccer's Premier League, for example. Formula One, so i.e. Bernie and CBC, receive 40% of that figure. So what happened here over the last 10 years that made the, the, the rights and the value of F1 skyrocket? In other words, did people just decide they were really into racing when it was given to them, mm. or... Or, or was there some change in the landscape, or, or did did Bernie and, and the owners do something to Formula One to make it a lot more popular? Well, you've got to remember when CVC came in, there was an awful lot of risk attached to the sport. Uh, there was talk of the teams uh, splitting off and doing their own thing. Indeed, they actually formed an association in 2008 uh, called FOTA, which was demanding a far greater share of the revenues or they were going to walk. This has been kind of threatened a few times, but Bernie has always principally been able to keep one or two of the leading teams on side to stop them taking a stance against him. At this point, it was, you know, they had Ferrari were leading this alongside Red Bull. And it took another two and a half years for Bernie to sort of split that uh, up in return for giving the bigger teams an even bigger slice of the pie. He divides and rules. We've also seen this incredible boom in broadcast rights for sports properties all over the world. And, and you see that across the U.S. as well. Think about all the money that's going into the NBA right now. That's TV money. Um, and the same thing for F1. Uh, the money has increased. Some will say it's a bubble. Some will say it's not. But, but sports properties, and we saw this with UFC earlier this year, there is this huge demand for content, for broadcast, for digital. Uh, and sports properties have proved in the entertainment world to be some of the most bulletproof in that regard. Yeah, I'll get back to UFC in a moment because I do think there's sort of an interesting parallel between those two deals. By the way, you can hear about that UFC deal just a few weeks ago. I believe that's episode 34 where, where UFC selling for $4 billion uh, was our deal of the week then. But look, I'm just a stupid American here. So can you explain to me exactly 
how Formula One works. So there are teams, but there are also drivers. And then there's, uh, is it similar to NASCAR? Is it different? How, how does uh, how does the sport work? There's uh, 20 races that are done per year across the globe. Each team uh, is allowed to have two cars per race once you're accepted onto the paddock. So you'll have, I think there's 10 teams now, if you uh, 10 or 11 teams, uh, a couple of which are feeder teams for some of the larger ones. There's a team called Toro Rosso, which is essentially also owned by Red Bull Racing, one of the leading teams. Your drivers race, and depending on where you finish inside of the top eight, you receive points. Uh, over the course of that season, uh, the driver with the most points will receive uh, the driver's championship. And there's also the constructor's championship for the you do a weighted average of the two teams, of the two drivers' scores. And if they uh, in turn reach the top, they win the Constructors' Championship. We also get a bigger slice of the pie. F1 also does not have the same kind of restrictions or, or, or uniformity that that NASCAR has. Uh, so there's more of an emphasis on engineering and therefore also more of an emphasis on spending money and uh, kind of a separation between the haves and the have-nots. And who are the major car makers for F1? There's been a little bit of changing of the guards. Historically, it's always been Ferrari. Uh, in more recent years, you've had other teams come to the fore, including Mercedes, which has been on a great run over the past two or three years. And prior to that, you had Red Bull Racing. So I'm, I'm looking at an article here where Bernie Ecclestone calls F1. Now, remember, he, he runs F1. He calls it crap uh, and acknowledges it's a huge mess. So this is, on the surface, a little bizarre to me that the person that runs the sport is saying this. What does he think is wrong with F1 and why is he saying this? Bernie's a little bit of a traditionalist, but he also, everything he says, you know, there's a point behind it. Uh, this is in relation to the technical aspect, I believe, if you look deeper into the story. He doesn't like the fact that the teams have got together and co- with common engine specifications. Uh, his main criticism is they're too quiet. He doesn't think it's exciting enough for the racing. <laughs> but if you look to the longer game, the teams that he's dealing up with are already providing more engines to most of the teams in the sport, which creates a situation where you know, they're effectively, the three or four teams are owning it alongside Bernie. You know, it decreases the uh, competition and allows, you know, Bernie to exercise more control. While we're on Bernie for a second, Kyle, you know better than me, but I would assume if you're looking to buy this property, there is a concern about what the succession plan looks like. Yeah. Whether somebody or multiple people can step in and do what he does or whether F1 can exist in the same way when he's, I mean, he's 85 years old. Mm-hmm. At some point, he has to step down. Well, what happens true. after that? Uh, there's, there's, look, there's obviously huge key man risk, and that was a risk when CBC came in, and anyone who looks at it now is going to have to deal with Bernie. There isn't really a succession plan in place, even during uh, the bribery trial a couple of years ago, where Bernie had his wings clipped slightly. He was taken off the board of F1. He was still running it day to day. Everyone that I've spoken to over the years said you couldn't get another Bernie. You'd have to split the job into three. You'd have someone who looked very strongly commercially, someone who was very strong on the technical side of things, and sort of a chairman overseeing it and driving forward where they wanted the sport to be in 10 years' time. So yeah, let's talk about that. That was the first time I ever heard of Bernie Eccleston was this bribery trial. Remind us exactly what happened there, Kyle? Well, during the original buyout uh, of CBC took over from the long story is it was owned by a media company called Kirch that collapsed into bankruptcy. So it was held by a consortium of lenders, the main uh, of which was uh, Bayern LB in Germany. Now, the banker from Bayern LB, who was tasked with selling the sport, basically admitted that um, he'd taken bribes from Bernie to help move the sport to CVC, which was his preferred buyer. And why was it his preferred buyer? Uh, it was felt that he'd have a greater degree of control with a financial sponsor than he would with anybody else. And CVC have also had a long experience in the sport. They dealt with MotoGP, which is another racing series before they owned Formula One. So there was a settlement? Uh, 
there were two separate cases bought, uh, one of which uh, saw, in Germany saw Bernie ultimately make a payment in exchange for there being no uh, admittance of guilt on the bribery scale. And in London, he was uh, found innocent, despite the fact the judge called the payments made a bribe. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so let's be clear, was Bernie was of? not found guilty in any score, um, just uh, in case the lawyers read this later. Gotcha. So yeah, so 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 there was no hitch. So Bernie just kept running. The yes, trial Bernie, ended. He just kept running. Yeah, Formula One. Once the once the payment was made to Germany, he was reinstated back onto the board That's and has continued to run. Fantastic. Since. What do we know about CVC, Kyle? So I mentioned it sort of in the intro here. They were a much smaller private equity firm when this deal was done ten years ago. Now they're quite big, right? Oh yeah, they're one of the biggest private equity firms in the world now. They've uh, around the same time. It's important to remember, that given the sort of risk and prestige this has, when you own this kind of an asset, you get a lot of sort of soft benefits. Uh, on F1's paddock, there's the chief executive or chief marketing officer of every major business in the world. You can walk in and see the CEO of Unilever. You can see the CEO of Petrobras. You know, these people all congregate around these sports because they want to be in Monaco. They want to be at the British Grand Prix. They want to be at Indianapolis. It's, you know, where the one, one, 0.001% hang out. And CVC used that to their advantage. You know, it's a great place to host. Uh, it's also been a fantastic return for them. And it's the great calling card as they were coming out and raising money. They were already banking cash from Formula One. And their rivals were seeing their uh, valuations of their portfolios fall to the floor. What else do they own or what else have they owned? Uh, it's been mostly sort of prestige uh, assets in Europe. You talk to things like Automobile Association, which is very known in the UK. Their best US investment would be Petco, which they bought last year. Do they sort of have a price range these days? Or are they typically looking to invest several billion dollars in their uh in They've their got assets? many different pockets now, which has been a testament to their growth. So their main buyout fund was, you know, eleven billion US and they're going for a fifteen billion euro, so given where the exchange rates that could be eighteen billion funds. So it'll be one of the biggest funds in the world the next time around. Which... Your your story uh talks a little bit about that this has been somewhat of a controversial investment for C V C because it, it wanted to pay itself and its partners back quickly, right? Mm-hmm. Is this atypical? Is there something atypical about this deal? Well, it's atypical for a number of reasons. One, it's a very unique asset. Two, you don't typically take this much out in a recap unless you're very confident in the growth of the sport beforehand. You know, every private equity firm would love to own an asset like F1 that could pay them this much. And the wrinkle for CBC is they actually have what's known as an eat what you kill compensation scheme. So if you're a team member who's involved with a specific deal, you will be rewarded disproportionately versus the rest of the firm for the success of that deal. So the main guys around this, and then you know, there are at best a dozen within the firm, have been paid highly princely sums you know, relative to the rest of the firm for the success of it. Evan, you, you mentioned UFC. So it seems to me like both of these cases are deals where there was an owner that sat on a sports asset for a while, and then the broadcast rights sort of took off, and then the owner is set to make uh, a lot more money on this by being patient. CVC, by the way, something we didn't really mention, uh, has almost sold its stake in F1 for a long time now, and it has not pulled the trigger and still hasn't. Uh, and so we may see a deal finally uh, next month, but I suppose there is a scenario where they still don't pull the trigger and decide to sit on this. Are there any lessons that can be learned from this, or are these sort of two one-offs? No, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I think there are lessons you can learn from it. Uh, maybe one of the principal lessons is that now is the time to do this if, if you're holding one of these companies. I mean, there are similarities between F1 and UFC. They're both international 
sports properties in a way that, that a lot of sports properties are not. There are also differences. There's concerns at F1 about the way they use digital, the way, the way they use mobile, the way they use social. That was one of the calling cards of UFC. They were very they were ahead of the curve in making their own digital network. They're ahead of the curve in kind of the way they outreach to fans. So I think if you're looking at F1 as a property, that's both a, maybe a concern and also a benefit. You can come in and you can overhaul the way they reach out to their younger fans. There's a lot of untapped revenue streams possibility in, in F1 right now, whereas UFC was just kind of ahead of the curve on that. But you're right. I think there are definitely there are similarities and certainly lessons, I think, about what the status of the rights bubble right now and also what, what sports properties are commanding now. Yeah, just to come to that point on the potential in F1, you'd think an asset that has been sweated this much by CBC, you know, they would they have taken a lot of cash out of the sport that could have been used to grow it. The reason people are so excited about this is because there is that untapped potential in what you can do with mobile. F1 as an asset throws off so much information that is not really given to the fans that you could use in the same way that you see in sports in the US like baseball. If you can get that and deliver it, you create a much richer sporting engagement on behalf of the fan. Uh, some of the estimates I'd heard from other sponsors that had looked at it in previous years all thought they could double EBITDA again, which would be a tremendous thing considering how much the sports are already worth. It's funny. In the sports world, uh, the U.S. sports properties have kind of led the way in this regard, and you're kind of starting to see it in international soccer, kind of taking the lessons that U.S. sports teams have learned already in terms of pushing out content, in terms of utilizing digital, in terms of using social streams, et cetera. And, and yeah, if F1 can learn those lessons as well. There, there's certainly no telling where, where the profits can go. Kyle, at this point, would you say there's a leading candidate? to Is Sky the leading candidate to buy this? It's certainly there. The general feeling I get is that Bernie would like a more hands-off, you know, private equity type owner to work alongside him who will just let him get on with the that job. That would be RSE. That would be RSE or an RSE like that, or if the Qataris just come in and become a silent shareholder and let Bernie get on with it. Because let's remember, he only owns 5% of it now directly alongside his family trust, which owns another 10 to 15. Uh, so he is the minority owner, but yeah, he still acts, walks and talks as if he owns the whole thing. We'll see in the next few weeks. You speak to the point that, you know, there's a situation where they may hold it, CVC. That's true. But after 10 years, the fund only lasts 12, and it was bought at the very early part of that. They'd have to come up with a more unique solution. And it's felt like now, with the next fund being raised, they want to clear the decks and return the capital. And and, and it sounds like, based on what you guys said, if, if F1 wants to take the next step here, it may be better off in the hands of sort of a media powerhouse that knows how to do these things to generate EBITDA rather than just a simple private equity owner or just CVC, which obviously hasn't done some of these things up until But CVC hasn't done them because of Bernie. So there's still the argument that if a Sky comes in and buys it, is Bernie going to allow them the latitude that they need to put these developments Mm in? So a lot of questions for the future of F1, one of which is that Bernie Ecclestone is 85 years old, as we talked about. Eben Novi-Williams and Kyle Porter, both Bloomberg reporters, check out Kyle's story on Bloomberg.com on Formula One. Thanks, guys. So that's it for this week's episode. You can expect more Bloomberg reporters and M&A professionals who are doing deals real-time. Until then, find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Google Play, or any app you use to listen to podcasts and take a minute to rate and review the show while you're there. Also, any questions or any ideas of what you'd like to hear on the show, please email me at asherman6 at bloomberg.net and follow me on Twitter at Sherman4949. Kyle is at Kyle Porter and Eben is at Novi underscore Williams. Next week, my colleague Ed Hammond 
takes over as host. In fact, he'll be doing it for two weeks as I go out on vacation. But I will see you guys here back right around Labor Day. See you then.